With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. Do you love Selena? Like, really love? Whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stan the Queen of Tejano. And Stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon. We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here and this season takes it to a whole new level old school legends modern power players and ex-lovers are all competing in cape town south africa for the prize of three hundred thousand dollars and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast listen to mtv's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts the book of joe podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome back to the Book of Joe podcast with me, Tom Verducci, and Joe Madden. And hey, if you watched World Series Game 1, if you heard about World Series Game 1, well, that's a reason to go buy and read our book, The Book of Joe, because you talk about playoff baseball and what a manager does in the course of a game. Yeah. Joe Madden, that was a manager's game, game one of the World Series. Wow. There was a lot to think about. I mean, especially early on, both starting pitchers. Um, uh, start with Nola. I mean, obviously wasn't on top of his game. Uh, it was the first game of the series. You have a fully rested bullpen, four days off. You get another day off after two games. So I, I just didn't know they're going to go with that. So I was watching, and I, I, I thought to myself, probably or possibly because of a couple reasons. <clears throat> first game. Uh, it's first game of the series. There's a lot left. Whatever. Let's just stay with this. See what happens. Number two, maybe just didn't like the the long relief options and preferred staying with Aaron at that particular juncture, uh, because five runs is a lot to give up, and then to overcome versus Verlander, that's not something you normally would bet on. Um, so that was a part I was just watching to see what they wanted to do. And on the other side, Verlander. I mean, you have a five nothing lead, and all of a sudden it starts uh, dripping away. And again, they have the same situation. I think they're they were better suited for long relief, possibly than uh, the other team was. So I was just that was that was my internal questions during that game, just watching the whole thing. Um, uh, and I was wasn't surprised how it all played out regarding both starters stayed in there a little bit longer being game one. There'd be a lot less patience if that was game three, four, or five. Yeah, well put, and especially as it regards to Nola, he had problems for some reason mechanically pitching out of the stretch. When he was in the windup, he was fine. So once he cleared the home run, uh, the second one actually by Kyle Tucker, he was good out of the stretch. Mm-hmm. And then I saw Rob Thompson, and I've seen him do this throughout the postseason, Joe. And it's sort of like getting Johnny Lester in Game 7 of 2016. Right. He's not going to sit around and be passive, especially in a World Series game. When you're in a tie game, fifth inning World Series, yep. that's a high leverage spot. High leverage spot does not mean 7, 8, 9, folks. Right. And he had it drawn up that the way he's going to control these games, it all revolves around Alvarez, mm-hmm. right? Alvarez and Tucker, the only two lefties in the Houston lineup, bat three spots apart. So when that runway comes up, 
anytime, especially if they're getting up a third time. Rob Thompson is going to put his best arm on them, and right now that's Jose Alvarado. And you're going to do that whether it's the fifth inning, the sixth inning, the seventh inning, or the ninth. And he had it set up because he had Ranger Suarez, probably his game three starter, sitting in the bullpen to get him out against those two the next time around. So I, I thought once again, Rob Thompson managed a brilliant ball game, making sure that you don't sit around and hope the game gets to your better relievers. You go to them, especially when you got a chance to win a World Series game, you go for it. Yeah, especially game one under the circumstances. Yeah, he had that all uh, thought out. In other words, I mean, I'm looking at it. He wanted X number of outs out of NOLA for the rest of this thing to play out. And like you're suggesting, when are these lefties coming up? And I got uh, uh, Alvarez for the first time through, Suarez for the second time through. And at that point, you're thinking, listen, if it's a bad game by then, then Suarez isn't going to pitch and nothing's really lost in a sense. It's, of course, the game would be, but you don't have to go through all that. So he, he, he bet on those two lefties. He had them set up based on the number of outs left. He start counting outs. He start looking at it. You deal with the perfect world, one, two, three, one, two, three, uh, uh, out inning. Sometimes it might be a four-out inning, but you start looking at that in advance, and that's how you draw the whole thing up. And, um, yeah, I thought he did a great job. I loved um, when he when he pulled Noel after the one-hitter. He was just in it to face the righty. Everything was set up, and, again, it was about the, the left-handed matchups. But he had already um, drawn it up in his mind, the numbers, and was looking at his uh, – Sheep before the game, who, who this guy has to face, get him out. This next guy faces this many guys, get him out. And like uh, I like the four-out situation too. Even as uh, when you're developing young minor league pitchers, I like the idea of relievers that you make sure they get four outs. In other words, they may get the last out of an inning in the next three, the next inning, or get three and then maybe one in the next inning before you get him out because the matchups would serve better. And Joe, I'm going to tell you and our listeners – a great story here about managing because I think a lot of our book is about it's not data versus old school. It, it's a balance, right? Mm -hmm. Art and science. It's all about balance. Nobody's picking one side of another. But here's a good example of how that balance works when it comes to Rob Thompson. Right. He's got a lineup where he's got his best hitter, Bryce Harper, hitting fourth. Okay, not second, not third, like a, the way a lot of the new analytics guys like to do that. And he's got a runway of right-handed hitters there. And you have a Houston team with one lefty in the bullpen. Now, their righties do get lefties out. So the tendency would be to move Harper up in the lineup to second or probably third, where you can go left, right, left, Schwarber, Hoskins, Harper. Well, of course, Rob Thompson thought about that. And you know what he did? He talked to his coaches. He talked to his players. This is before game one of the World Series. And everybody said, don't overthink it. It's working. Harper actually loves to hit third, prefers hitting third, but he's in such a good place now. He's like, I'm good, Rob, at hitting the fourth spot. So even though it might make sense in an incremental sense to have Harper hit third instead of fourth, the manager talked to his players, talked to his coaches, and he said, we are not overthinking it. This is working, mm -hmm. and we're sticking it with it. And I've seen managers throughout this postseason, Joe, in the regular season, they're going to chase every incremental edge that they can find, and they might even dismiss or not even consider the player's comfort in a lineup spot, mm -hmm. and they will chase those incremental edges based on the numbers. I, I know you've been there. I, I know you get all this information. Yeah. Uh, let me hear your take on that. Yeah, I was curious what they were going to do because they put Smith in the bullpen, one left-hander. Um, and like you had just uh, mentioned, their righties get out lefty, so that's kind of a moot point. 
I was just curious whether or not they would go um, left, right, left, right uh, last night. Uh, I was curious when the lineup was posted if Real Muto would still be in a three-hole. What you do there, because of the um, the blocks now where you have to get uh, face three hitters, you try to put a little bit more separation be- be- uh, between your best lefties. So Schwarber, two righties, and another lefty. So if they wanted to bring the lefty in to start the inning versus Schwarber, as an example, then he's got to face two righties after that before he gets to Harper. Before you'd go left, right, left, and all of a sudden the lefty gets uh, in, a, in a block of three, he gets two left-handed hitters. So that's that's something I started a couple years ago, and that when the block of three came up, you have to face three hitters minimum. That's that's how I started stacking my lineup to avoid uh, that left-handed matchup on your left-handed hitters in that small block. So I was curious, and I don't know that that with Smith there now, I don't even know the fact that he wasn't in the last round that they're even worried about that. I don't even know that that was a concern of theirs, that he would be used in a real high leverage moment based on the fact. Yeah, they're not, they're really not worried about Smith. You're going to see a brave in the biggest spots right on left. Like yeah. you said, and you've had that with Peralta and some other relievers. Correct. You're going to go with your best arm. Right. So they weren't even worried about that. The Phillies were, I think they thought about that. So listen, that's just there possibly to scare us off. We're going to stay with it this way. And just like you're saying, don't overthink it, man. Uh, you know what's working for you right now. I, I appreciate the fact that he talked to his coaches and his players. I mean, that's something I've, I've, I've done. I've talked to players about spots in the batting order in crucial moments like that. I've done that before. And, of course, the hitting coaches, too. So that's all very interesting. And, wow, this game comes down to – well, it didn't come down to it, but wound up with JT Realmuto in his number three spot mm-hmm. leading off in the 10th inning. And, folks, I got to tell you, and, Joe, I know you being a an old catcher, you would appreciate this. That dude has caught every single pitch that the Phillies have thrown this postseason, okay? It's now the 10th inning. That was a four-and-a-half-hour game. He took an absolutely haymaker of a foul ball off his jaw in the middle of the game, right? No days off. He gets off the field after catching nine innings. He's leading off the 10th inning against a pitcher, Luis Garcia, he has never seen before. He gets to a one and two count, somehow gets it back to three, two, chokes up on the bat and takes a heater away that's actually out of the strike zone and hits a home run. This guy is an absolute beast. Uh, to me, he's kind of the heart and soul because of everything he does behind the plate, running the game, never takes a day off. That was game number 151 for him this year. Wow. Uh, and what he did, he just hit the first extra inning home run in the World Series by a catcher since... Well, Carlton Fisk, famously in 1975. Well, I'm as big a fan as you are. I mean, I've watched him since he was in Miami. He's all of that. He's absolutely all of that. And the fact that he's caught as often as he has, like you just uh, recaptured there, the guy runs well. He runs really well, actually. And he's uh, he's definitely the five-tool guy because most catchers can't include speed within their game. you got to watch him on the bases. He throws great. He's a really good thrower. Love the way he commands his pitching staff. And I, I did see some or hear some interviews with him yesterday. He speaks so well, and he's so prepared. I could just see why pitchers like to throw to this guy. And, and I did. I, I, when I woke up this morning, because I missed that last, I fell asleep. But I, it was Real Muto. My first thought was, there it is. He batted third as opposed to fourth. That was my first thought when I saw that. And like you're talking about, that was really a, a nasty pitch. Loved that he had choked up. But to choke up, look away first, drive the ball to the right side, hit it well enough. That's all really classic baseball stuff. Yeah, great approach. And by the way, we get to game two, Zach Wheeler on the mound. You'll really see how important JT is to the Phillies. Zach Wheeler is a guy who doesn't want a lot of information, right? He has never pitched against the Astros. He's pitching in the World Series, and he told me, all I want to know is two things. What hitters swing early in the count? 
And where can I go on a chase pitch to certain guys? He said, after that, I rely all on JT Real Muto. JT does the prep, does the game calling. You'll rarely see him shake him off. This is a guy, JT Real Muto, who gives you so much more that we don't even see. So when we get back, we're going to take a quick break here. I want to talk to Joe about one of his former players who we all heard wasn't supposed to be a good defender. Back with that in a minute. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. People don't always realize just how much their negative thoughts and experiences stick with them and weigh them down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mom does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapist anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Book of Joe today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash Book of Joe. Do you love Selena? Like, really love whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stan the Queen of Tejano. And stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon. We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back to the Book of Joe podcast. Joe Madden, you had Nick Castellanos in Chicago with the Cubs. And there he was in the World Series, literally saving the game with a diving catch on a bloop to right field that would have knocked in the winning run in the ninth inning. Nick Castellanos made the play of the game. Actually, Alec Bohm made a really good one as well. But Nick Castellanos, you got him with the Cubs. The Cubs traded for him. They did. And we're talking about the book of Joe, our book and our podcast. What was the book on Nick back then? Well, yeah, first of all, I'm really happy. I've seen him in a lot of photographs uh, carrying his glove around with him to and from the ballpark. That's Nick's sense of humor. Plus, I, I really believe that he's uh, talking to his glove a lot to make sure that it's working properly. Uh, when I first got him, uh, when we first got him in Chicago, was told by the analytical department that he was not really good on defense and that um, chase sliders a lot. You're seeing that. So I was, it was suggested to me to not play him every day that first week that we got him. And I was really like, are you kidding me? Uh, so my question was to the group, 
why is he not a, a, a why, why do you consider him a below average outfielder? Give me some information. I was thinking technique primarily, but they, they were unable to provide an answer regarding technique. So what I've done in the past, normally with the guy that I've hear that about, because it's all based on um, index numbers and uh, how, the, the, the amount of ground you could cover. I said, Nikki, just do me a favor. Play deeper, play a little bit deeper. Um, if the ball falls in front of you, no big deal. But if it gets over your head, it's a little bit more problematic. So I just want you to play a little bit deeper and then work with everything in front of you. And I, that whole time I had him there with the Cubs a couple months, I, I, we were never jeopardized by his play in left field. Not only the play yesterday, but he's made another diving play more recently in Philadelphia also. Uh, Nick's into it, man. He's into it. He does. It, you criticize him like that, he's going to do something about it. Um, he had been in the infield in the past a little bit with Detroit too. So I'm really happy for the guy. Listen, he's, he loves baseball before every game. He would come up to me before every game in Chicago, come up, shake my hand and say, cause Nick's look, Nick looks you right in the eyeballs. You don't look around. He don't look like your forehead. Happy opening day. He say me every day, come up to me in the dugout, happy opening day. That little smirk, that little smile. And then he go along to his business. I really am a big fan of this guy. Yeah. He's a tough cookie. And by the way, if you noticed, World Series game one, up by a run. Rob Thompson keeps his corner outfielders in the game. Kyle Schwarber and Nick Castellanos. Now, there's a lot of managers who would take them off the field. And there are times when Rob Thompson has done that. I asked Rob Thompson about that. And he he knew that that Alvarez was leading off the 10th inning for Houston. Really, you can't discount the ability of Alvarez at the ball out of the ballpark. It's a one run game. Schwarber was due up second if the game got to an 11th inning and he just couldn't take those two bats out of his lineup in a one run game thinking, you know, there's a lot of times when managers do that and that spot does come around. So give him credit again, trusting his players, leaving guys in who are not, let's face it, plus defenders, but they're good enough to trust with the game on the line in the world series. Yeah, if you know the guy's coming up the next inning in that tight of a game, you got to you take that chance one way or the other. Um, so I understand that I've done the same thing. Sometimes you'll just often say, no, I really want the defense right here. Uh, otherwise, you will do exactly what he had done with Schwerb's coming up second. So those are the kind of thoughts that you have. And again, post-game, those aren't the kind of thoughts that are evaluated all the time. I mean, it's always normally based on how a manager utilizes bullpen. That's where the scrutiny comes or is involved or possibly – a pitch hitting situation, but those are the kind of thoughts that you have during the course of the game that, again, nobody recognizes and nobody talks about. And had the ball been hit to Nick or, or Kyle and they had a tough moment, it absolutely would have been brought up. So uh, you take your chances sometimes. You, you know your guys. You know what you're feeling. And uh, furthermore, uh, was, it, was it Alvarez and then who else? And then Tucker coming up that inning? And if that's – I Bregman think that's in, the mi- in the middle. So he's thinking ball in the stands, like you're saying – I. He wasn't worried about singles right there, bloopers. He was worried about those guys putting the ball in the stands more than anything. So they're uncatchable uh, plays too. So he he had all that all those different items thought out at that point. Yeah, and there was a great shot of Kyle Schwarber again, another guy who's just a real smart player. Once the Astros got the tying run in scoring position, reminding Brandon Marsh in center field to play further in because they had been in no doubles, obviously with the bases empty. Now with the runner on second, you need to get in an area where you can throw that runner out at the plate or at least challenge that runner. And this is right before the great catch by Castellanos. Now, Schwarber told me he also motioned to Castellanos to move a step in, but Castellanos already had done so. I mean, he was aware of it, and Schwarber said that. He said, I got 
Marsh's attention, but this is a team that pays attention. And Joe, we talked about this, Mm -hmm. uh, about the kind of player this Phillies team is loaded with. They're loaded with players from age 24 to 32 who have never won before most of them. They only have four guys on their roster who have been to a World Series. Castellanos, Real Muto, Wheeler, Nola, Segura, all these guys, they're in the postseason for the first time, never mind just the World Series. They have a hungry group. There's no question about it, but they also have enough experience to have been around the block. And Gene Segura had the quote of the postseason for me when he said, listen, you know, I'm good financially. I've done everything I want, but now I want to win. And this brings me back to your five levels of being a professional. And if you read the book of Joe, you got to read that chapter, if nothing else. It really hones in on, you know, where we are ourselves, whether we play baseball or, or in the workplace, in terms of feeling comfortable at what you do. And Joe, this team is loaded with what you call level five players. How about that? Yeah, I mean, exactly right on. Uh, I started this thing with the five levels of being a professional. I thought in just in baseball terms, but as you suggested, I think it applies in other <coughs> excuse me, arenas too. Um, level one, happy to be here. Level two, survival. I like this. I want to stay here. Level three, uh, I belong here. I can do this. And we all have to arrive at that point to truly be successful in our occupation. Level four, God, I want to make as much money as I possibly can. I got to take care of my family. I want to try to set it up for the future. But to get to... Level five, after you've accomplished those first four steps, all I want to do is win. Whether it's uh, as a uh, baseball player, whether whatever job you might have, you get to that point where you just want to be the best at what you do. And I think a lot of these guys are, are at that point in their careers. Yeah, I would even throw Bryce Harper in that group. And I know of course, all the accolades, of course, the two MVPs. It's not to say he didn't want to win before. And Joe, maybe you can explain this further. And I know you do this really, really well in the book. You know, for a guy who wants to get established, take care of his family, make some money, nothing wrong with that, right? Of course not. No, that's natural. And I, and I, I really promote that. It's, it's just a natural progression as you become, uh, you get through your baseball career or your career in general. Uh, you can't slight anybody for that, especially in our game where the shelf life is, is normally very short. So there's others, some that uh, have the great fortune to have wonderful bodies that don't break down and wonderful athletic ability, and they're able to do this longer. But for the most part, it's not that long of a career. And even even a 10-year career is not that long if you look back at it. So, yeah, you've got to go through those stages. I never, ever slight anybody that uh, really wants to take care of their family and, of course, themselves. But that's just a natural human progression that I think is a big part of the five levels. But you want to get guys from one, um, I'm happy to be here, to number three, I belong or I can do this, to number five, all I want to do is win and get in and out of, of two and four as quickly as you can. Survival. Survival stage is a very dangerous stage to be in because those guys there are just trying to please and they're trying not to make mistakes. And it's really not about winning yet. It's just about them staying there because uh, I really like this. I like being in the major leagues. I like uh, these ballparks and the big crowds and flying on a chartered airplane. I love all this stuff. And then you get through that to three. I belong here. I can do this. And let's get in and out of four. Let's make our dough. Let's get that nice contract, whatever it may be, and really keep our focus where it needs to be uh, from the first day of spring training to the last game of the season. And that's all they want to do is win. Yeah. And I just want to add one more layer to that, Joe, when it comes to the construct of the Phillies. And that is, and you did a great job describing where these players are at, their belief in their manager. Mm -hmm. So that when Rob Thompson 
goes to his typical, say, seventh or eighth inning guy, Alvarado, in the fifth inning, Mm -hmm. they don't roll their eyes. They all told me to a man, and I spoke to three, four, five, six of them after the game. They just don't question the move. It works out for Rob Thompson. They love the guy. And if he's doing it, they understand that he has reasons for doing it. And the relief pitchers, more importantly, they're all ready to go no matter what. The belief in the manager here is really powerful. And that's that's wonderful. And that's very uh, necessary to have a, a successful team, one that can play the last game of the year and win it. Uh, the, the players sometimes don't understand, but they will. And they are right now that the game's different right now in the sense that we've talked about you have to be uh, less patient, more assertive, more aggressive in different moments. And I think that's just, that is a part of the analytical world. This, this kind of uh, a method has been adopted over the last 10, 15 years where you're more apt to do something like that. You're more apt to go to one of your late guys early. And again, that needs to be nurtured before the game because you have to tell these guys to be ready earlier than normal. Bullpen guys are very structured. They have this method of getting ready on a nightly basis, whether it's when they get their arm rubbed down or any exercise inside, inside to how much they play catch before they actually come into the game. So all this stuff needs to be communicated. Well in advance, coaches, uh, bullpen coach, pitching coach really need to be on top of this in order to get this nice flow going to have like an eighth or ninth inning guy, or let's say seventh or eighth inning guy, ready in the fifth or sixth inning. Well, we haven't touched on the Houston Astros yet and Justin Verlander. Wow, what happened? Take a quick break, and we'll dive into that when we get back on the Book of Joe podcast. Do you love Selena? Like, really love Whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stan the Queen of Tejano. And stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon. We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. All 
Welcome back to the Book of Joe podcast. Justin Verlander had a 5-0 lead, and the Astros lost the game at home. I mean, listen, I know the Phillies are a red-hot team. I was shocked to see it, that the game got away from Houston. It was interesting to me, Joe, watching Verlander. I thought he came out really establishing that that fastball with a great ride on it. He threw 67% fastballs first time through the lineup, and Phillies just weren't catching up to it. I mean, the, the, the at-bat with Bryce Harper, three straight heaters riding up in the zone that he was underneath. So he was on point, and then things started to get a little squirrely on him. And when he got in trouble, he started going to his breaking pitches and hung three of them for three consecutive hits where they came back and tied the game. It was strange to see. I don't know. I, it's hard for me to explain, Joe, that Justin Verlander, who has done everything in this game, first ballot Hall of Famer, just a spectacular competitor and pitcher, would have the kind of World Series record that he has now. Eight starts, an ERA over five, no wins in the World Series. I Again, don't know how to explain it. It's not that small of a sample. Nobody has started as many World Series games without a win as Justin Verlander, but it was perplexing to see. Credit to the Phillies, of course, but very odd. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I was really surprised about the usage at that time. Now, the pitch to Nicky Castellanos was a good pitch. He just one-handed it out to left field. But Rio Muto and Baum, how do you say Bond? Baum, yeah. Uh, Baum. Yeah, breaking ball left yeah, up. Yeah, th- those, are, those are bad breaking balls. Um and and again, yeah, I, I was wondering why do we get away from the fastball there? They really had no chance on this fastball last night. You could even see on television the ride on that pitch. So I was surprised. I mean, the first time through, it was probably their game plan. Listen, first time through, we're going to really beat them up with the fastball. We're going to save the other stuff for later. We're going to come back with it, which is fine, and I, I get it. But And again, too, the breaking balls, especially Bonds, that was a hanger right there. Uh, Real Moto had to reach a little bit. And Nicky's was actually a good pitch. But nevertheless, the fastball was that uh, dominating last night, I thought. And normally, you would just want to stay with that till they prove to you that they can do something with it. Because I, I, even after that, even after the couple knocks, anytime he threw that fastball up in his own, it had really good ride to it. So I was, I was kind of surprised with the pitch selection. I'm not a second guesser by any means, but I was watching that and wondering why they were getting off the breaking ball, and, I mean, off the fastball in big moments. And slowing the pitch down and giving the hitter more time to react, I was really surprised by that. Yeah, listen, the Astros have a ton of experience. We all know that. It's just one game out of a seven-game series. Yeah. Uh, but I, I thought it was super important for Philadelphia to split these first two games. I did not see them if they go home down 0-2. Mm-hmm. Winning mm-hmm. four of five against a 106-win Houston team that's at that point would have had nine consecutive wins in the postseason. So with... Nola and Wheeler starting the first two games. I thought they have to get one game. Well, they got a game. They took it right out of the pocket of the Houston Astros. And now they've got their guy with, for me, has their best stuff, Zach Wheeler, going in game two. Joe, are the Houston Astros in trouble right now? Well, we'll see. I, I, yeah, they're, they're good. They're good. They're resilient. Uh, they have Actually, they swung the bats really well last night until they got to that bullpen. Um, um, we'll see. Uh, I like their pitcher tonight. I like Valdez a lot. Um, he is problematic. And actually, I like I like him on righties as much, maybe even a little bit more on, than on lefties sometimes. That curveball underneath, that sinker, the ball's on the ground. Um, it's going to be a tough – he's going to be a tough guy to put those kind of numbers up uh, that many runs against tonight as uh, as opposed to what they did with Verlander last night. I'm a big Wheeler fan. I you know A couple years ago with the Angels, that was the guy that I really wanted us to target when he was a free agent. 
Um, I've always been a big fan of his. I, I love his fastball. I love the way he's almost like one of the easiest throwers. He's very close to DeGrom to me when I watch him, how the ball comes out of his hand. Um, if he's on top of his game, it's going to be one, another one of those one nothing 2-1 things. But you're right. I mean, Houston really needs to get back on top of this thing. If it gets back to Philly two down uh, in that ballpark with that, uh, that that fanatical fan base, it's going to be very difficult. Um, I'm a big Valdez fan. Valdez is that good, too. So it's it's going to be low scoring. And if Valdez is commanding his fastball, getting that uh, bunch of ground balls, he's going to be really tough. By the way, the, that game three at the bank in Philly, that's uh-huh. on Halloween night. <laughs> you talk <laughs> wow. about crazy. <laughs> well, I've been there for a 2008, the World Series. We played uh, one of the games there af- after an Eagles game on the same day. Oh, yeah. Eagles afternoon, uh, Citizens Bank at night. Oh, my God. It was uh, it was different. That's the best night. It was actually Halloween night, and even though it wasn't Halloween that night. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you used that euphemism, different, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because the language coming out of the stands in that place is like oh my God. unlike anything else. Oh, my God. And I'm a Pennsylvanian. Hey, on those two pitchers, yes. Valdez, by the way, against the Yankees, and I know they have definitely a little more swing and miss in their lineup, but mm-hmm. his last start, he got 16 swings and misses on that curveball 16 Mm -hmm. now we only have this kind of pitch tracking data going back to 2008 that is the most swings and misses on a curveball in any postseason game in recorded history so you're dead on with that call on that curveball right left doesn't matter especially on right yeah he can be filthy i actually i'm okay i mean i I would take my shot with some if you have a good left-handed hitter in a lineup versus him i kind of like that I think it mitigates the curveball a little bit. I like opposite, the like a left-handed curve against a right-handed hitter. I like a right-handed curve against a left-handed hitter. I think it's more problematic than the same side curve. Uh, left on left, I prefer like a good slider uh, and right on right, the same thing. I think it's a contact pitch more right on right or left on left. I think it's more of a punch-out pitch uh, opposite side. So he's his ball really dives. He gets on the plate or underneath the hitter. He commands that pitch well. And again, he has got a great changeup too. So this guy's got so many weapons um, and, and he's he's hardly ever in trouble. Uh, he pitches deeply in the games almost every time he goes out there. I think he hasn't, I don't even know how many consecutive games it's been now for him. So there's there's a, a level of excellence to this guy that's really unusual and different than than most pitchers in today's game. Yeah, he keeps the ball off the barrel, too. When he's not getting swings and misses, the ball's on the ground, usually weekly. Mm-hmm. And as for Wheeler, mm-hmm. great call with the comp to Jacob deGrom. Of course, they were teammates with the Mets. And Zach Wheeler really learned a lot from watching and working with Jacob deGrom. One thing he said was in his bullpen sessions, he said the hardest thing to do for a pitcher is to control fastball and glove side. And he said watching deGrom and, and seeing the way he worked bullpens, mm-hmm. It, Wheeler incorporated a practice where he would throw 10 consecutive glove side fastballs to make sure he could hone in on that pitch. It's the fulcrum to a lot of things of what pitchers do going back to the Braves in the nineties, big part of their game. Mm-hmm. Um, and he does that now a guy who used to spray that fastball a little bit. I think he he's got much, much better command than a lot of people think. And you're talking about a guy at 98, 99 and quick story for you, Joe, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, in 15, the Mets go to the World Series. Zach Wheeler was rehabbing from Tommy John surgery in Port St. Lucie, Florida. He says to the Mets, I want to go to the World Series. I want to sit in the stands or in the dugout, really put the uniform on, go in the dugout, because I want to feel what that atmosphere is like so that someday when I'm there, I'm not surprised by the vibe and the energy of the ballpark. The Mets told him, no, you're not sitting on the, in the dugout. 
So he said, okay, get me tickets. I'll sit in the stands and watch the game. They told him, no, if you want to watch the game, you're welcome to buy your own ticket. And Wheeler said, well, forget that. I'm not buying my own ticket. And he watched the series on TV in Port St. Lucie, Florida. And now he's in the World Series. That sounds like fiction to me. My God, how could that ever happen? I mean, if you have a guy of that magnitude as important as he is to you, why why would you? I mean, uh, there may have been rules to preclude him from being in the dugout. I don't even know that. But my God, I can't even believe that that was the conversation. Yeah, he's still, as you might imagine, a little ticked off about the way he was treated in that regard. But you're right. I remember the Yankees with Derek Jeter in the 95 postseason. He was not on the active roster. Oh, my God. They had him in uniform in the dugout. And one of my favorite Jeter stories mm-hmm. is David Cohn pitched his heart out in game five. He threw a gazillion pitches in that game, walked in the tying run, finally taken out of the game, walks off the field completely just devastated, both physically, emotionally. And the first guy that gets up to shake his hand out of the dugout at the Kingdome in Seattle was Derek Jeter. I'll never forget that. This is a rookie not even on the roster. Uh, but again, the Yankees did the right thing by taking this guy they knew was important to the franchise yeah, right. and having him in that postseason environment. And I'm not saying that's why Derek Jeter was Mr. November, <laughs> but it was a smart thing to do. A lot of experience that. Absolutely. hundred percent. So Joe, I always go to you for my uh, go-to music choices. What do you got? Is there any, is there something that you've discovered recently? Mm. I mean, as much as you've been into rock and roll your whole life, do you ever find some biscuits back? You know, you're like, wow, I, how did I miss this guy? I got to find out more about this band, this group. Anything that, that's come across your playlist these days oh. that you're maybe discovering for the first time or maybe going back to? Yeah. You know what? The other, I was laying, I was laying on the floor here stretching yesterday. And uh, I'm going to go back. I hate to tell you, I have to go back for you, but Cheap Trick came on. Cheap Trick came on. Cheap Trick was like 1979 to me. It was one of my Zoomer years. I was in between gigs. I was uh, just let go by the Angels, and I was trying to catch on with the Bakersfield Outlaws. And T. Lee, Terry Lee and I were going back to his home in uh, San Luis Obispo, and um, we're going down this big hill in his beat-up Chevelle, man. And and he was a big Cheap Trick guy, and he turned me on to it. So Cheap Trick came on the radio, and all I could see going over 46 and then down 101 to his, his cool pad down there, him and his parents. His parents were uh, uh, professors uh, in the university there. And to, to hang out with T. Lee down there with Cheap Trick, uh, it really brought me back very quickly. That's what music does to me. It puts me in places I could tell you there was a bad tire on that car back left, I think it was. You just remember <laughs> stuff like that. But it was all about all about Cheap Trick. Cheap Trick. As Tilly would call him, cheap trick, and uh, so that was my big uh, moment yesterday. Just stretching, getting ready to play a round of golf here at the Valley Country. Wow, Club. cheap trick! Now, cheap trick. I remember cheap trick, but I can't remember Joe whether cheap trick was cool at one point or were they always sort of a guilty pleasure? Where you like didn't admit that you liked them? Yeah, I, you're right. I mean, Tilly's that kind of guy. Uh, Terry Lee was one of the best low ball hitters I've ever been around in my life. Um, great, really funny guy. But yeah, I think it was more of a you had to be like a closet fan in the beginning, but now, man, I'm, I probably proclaim that I'm a huge Cheap Trick fan. Well, that's great stuff. And by the way, Dusty Baker, like us, loves his music. Yeah. Before game one last night, he was he had Muddy Waters on the playlist. So <laughs> he's probably going to have to change it up here for game two, see if the Astros mojo changes for the better. Right. We'll see. And uh, after game two and before game three, we'll be back with you 
with another edition of our Book of Joe podcast. Hope you love the stuff here. I think you people should be enjoying. It's really an illuminating look inside the dugout that you're not going to get anywhere else. And whatever you hear here on the podcast, folks, just be rest assured that there is so much more in the book. The Book of Joe with Tom Verducci and Joe Madden. Joe, looking forward to the next time. Well done, my brother. Looking forward to seeing your tie tonight. Thanks, babe. (laughs) The Book of Joe podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Do you love Selena? Like, really love? Whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stand the Queen of Tejano. And Stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon. We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here and this season takes it to a whole new level old school legends modern power players and ex-lovers are all competing in cape town south africa for the prize of three hundred thousand dollars and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast listen to mtv's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts